Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Christian Vistrup-Madsen. Christian, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm a writer based in Berlin, um, originally from Denmark. I've lived here for quite a few years, and I usually write um, art criticism and other kinds of uh, cultural criticism. I had a book come out a couple of years ago called Doing Time, which is a a nonfiction book about uh, using other people to make art. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. So we're going to be talking about an essay of yours that I encountered an excerpt of in Harper's a month or two ago, but it originally ran in um, the White Review. Is that what it's called? Yeah. The White Review dot uh, org. And a link will be in the show notes. And the headline of the piece is Chains or Whips, The Cruel Decade and Its Aftermath. And the essay is about the uh, the aughts. It's, it's strange that we don't even, at least in America, have a, haven't really decided what this decade is called, but the decade between 2000 and 2010. But maybe the chronological dates don't actually matter. And it's more of a kind of state of mind. So we might, we're not going to be talking only about that length of time. But um the piece is really interesting, and like I said, the link to the full thing will be in the show notes. Okay, what what was the inspiration for writing this piece and looking back at this at this time period? Um, what was the inspiration? So, I think it came out of, I guess, in the last ten years, having followed contemporary culture, especially through art, but also through music, television, whatever else celebrity culture, having followed the last decade very closely and kind of commented on it through my writing and my art criticism, uh, being in a constant conversation um, about a lot of the time identity politics, um, basically what types of affect were kind of floating around in the the contemporary um, during the first, well, all of the years of my work life so far. And I think as we moved further and further away from the 2000s, there was a moment, like I think I started thinking about this maybe two years ago um, when I first pitched it to to the editor. And, and, and maybe there was something in that moment of, it was around the time when the troops were leaving Afghanistan, uh, the Britney documentary came out, like certain things I think maybe have, had, had triggered this feeling that we were starting to be able to look at the 2000s in a different way. And in fact, that the 2000s could help me say some of the things that I wanted to say about the contemporary, but maybe the contemporary is still a little bit too close and and therefore murky. Okay. And and you actually start the essay off with those two examples. I'll just read the, the opening of the essay. It seems to me that the aughts ended with the final withdrawal of NATO soldiers from Afghanistan in 2021 or with the end of Britney's conservatorship. One of the things I liked about the essay was you're taking historical, international events, news events, and then cultural things. Some of, you know, obviously Britney Spears is a huge star of the past 20 years, but you're also looking at some of just the forgotten garbage trash of the of the culture over the past two decades and, and drawing connections between them. Um, and the, the theme you identify, <laughs> which is in your subtitle, is that this was a decade of cruelty. And I think in the excerpt that ran at Harper's, they started with the line, um, uh, it started with the low-rise jeans. That's, what, that's one of your cultural signifiers at the beginning of 
the metaphorical aughts. Um, so can you talk about about why is it that cruelty is what you identified as as the major theme of this period? Uh, I think because when we think back on it now, that is what feels or what felt to me uh, most strikingly different about that time. Like that is that is what we don't encounter, at least not in the same way in in kind of public culture anymore. Um, so I think in, in in a sense it was easy to identify because it was kind of it was kind of screaming to be to be seen um, like this kind of uh, cruel paparazzi culture, the way that uh, women were treated in the public sphere. Um, one kind of like very glaring example is what happened in Abu Ghraib. Um, and I guess not even because I think all of the things are still happening, but it's also that they were uh, that it that they captured people's imaginations that that people were obsessed with those things like they really took like a kind of public bashing took center stage in that culture in a way that that uh it hasn't quite in the i think it's possible to argue in the in the decade since there are all kinds of injustices and other types of things that 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 continue to happen obviously but they but they have a different uh flair or or something to them which isn't quite cruelty or not quite this type of sadism that I uh, that identify, that is to say sort of cruelty for its own sake. Mm -hmm. Let's see, do you, how did you decide not just to do either talking about something purely about culture and not talking about, you know, George Bush and Abu Ghraib and 9-11 or just talking purely about the historical events and not talking about Britney Spears and, uh, and Shannon Doherty's, how Shannon Doherty's genes and charmed looked outdated a couple of years later. Uh, for me, the, those things, because I'm talking about image culture, I'm talking about public media culture. Those things are absolutely related because they're happening right next to each other. They're happening on the same screen or inside of the same magazines or newspapers. Uh, I'm not sort of talking almost in, in a sense of those things hap happening in the real world. I'm talking about their, their image. And so they really are in a sense the same. Um, and, and also I think just on a, on a personal or, or like the, the place from where I speak from, that is what I'm able to talk about. I am not somebody who has an, an enormous amount of knowledge about um, the war in Afghanistan or about politics or in, in, indeed about about pop culture in the sense that I could really go down and be and become like very, very specific. I think uh, this is just the mode that I'm used to reading culture in, in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's also a nice, um, it's a nice way to structure an essay because often you're not as an individual, uh, hopefully if you're lucky, particularly close to say to the war in Afghanistan. But, mm -hmm. but you might feel very close to certain other things like which jeans you're wearing. Um, and so it's, it, it's like an obvious way to kind of to begin to write. Like I think one thing that I, that I remembered strongly is like this was even quite late, maybe like 2011 when I think that things started to, to change. I was in Paris with a friend. And we kept wanting to kind of, we wanted to take a picture of ourselves the way that one does when one is on holiday. We just could not bring ourselves to do it. Um, it because it was just at that point, a total kind of also being, you know, like 19 or something, but like 
it was a total faux pas to take a picture of yourself. It's <laughs> you know, impossible. It was so crass. And and just like, I don't know, a little sort of, I don't know, like crack of a memory like that um, opens up a whole kind of field of like, you know, what, why was that and what changed? And I think um, even though this this memory is totally absurd and, and, and a bit stupid, there's something about that which I also long for in the essay. That there, that there was some kind of dignity or something that was lost in this like trade-off of, of cruelty for mercy or something, which also became a type of sentimentality. Mm -hmm. Huh. So, you know, this essay is written in English for a uh, UK-based outlet. Um, and a lot of what's covered is, is American popular culture and America, American geopolitics and stuff. And I, you are not, American. Did you did you live in America during any of this period, or were you just absorbing this from like an out <laughs> an outside perspective? Um, actually, I hadn't. When I wrote it, I hadn't even thought about that it was about America. Like it was only when it kind of when it, it was picked up by Harper's, and I since kind of talked to people about it that they felt that it was an essay about America. For me, it was just it was about media in a way, and and I guess. It, it with my kind of fairly shallow consumption of media, it, it more turns out to be American media, especially because the other types of media that I consume are not in English. And so they don't make sense to refer to in an essay that's written in English. I think it just became about America sort of by happenstance um, in that way. But now that you ask, I did actually live in America for a time during the 2000s. Uh, when I was 15, I was on one of these uh, exchange uh, periods where I, I I lived in a small town in Idaho. Oh, wow. Um, huh. Which was a very, very intense experience, actually, and which I think probably taught me a lot about America, but not in a way that not in a in a way that has been like very conscious to me and not in a way that that consciously fed into this essay, actually. But I guess it's there. OK, that's very interesting. And then if you were in the you know, quote unquote, middle of nowhere, then the American culture you were consuming would be, you know, through TV or the covers of magazines or stuff like that. Um, that's, that's interesting. Do you, but do you think like, is it that American culture is so dominant on this level of image and spectacle and trash TV, like that it sort of has to set the global standard or is it more like, you know, you're writing for an English language atlas, so you're not going to be talking about German cultural, you know, German TV shows. It's maybe, um, it's a bit of both. I could have, um, I could have mentioned other examples. In fact, I like, if I had an audience for, for those examples that are maybe more dear and personal to me because they are in my, uh, in my mother tongue, um, I would love to speak about those, but I don't, I, I, don't, I don't have an audience for them. And <laughs> the crucial thing about pop culture is that it's not so much about the product itself um, as about how it's received, right? That's the kind of like how everybody puts them, like projects themselves onto the pop star or, or, or whatever news item it may be. So it, it also, like if it was another type of culture, which is, which is not, which doesn't function, which doesn't function in that way, through projection, but really is something in and of itself. It might have made made sense to choose a, an obscure example that people didn't know, but through, you know, but through writing about it, it would it would serve its purpose or something. Um, but I I don't like 
it's interesting that that pop culture it's really you have to um you have to hook people you have to talk about something that people know it's like singing karaoke if other people don't know the song <laughs> okay that's interesting and yeah certainly almost no non-english language um popular culture like permeates american popular culture you know like very occasionally there's a movie in that's has subtitles that breaks through like um a parasite you know a couple of years ago but it, it, we're mostly in america we're mostly consuming um american and british tv shows and music and movies and stuff like that so we're sort of you know i even someone who fancies themselves sort of like a culturally aware person has no idea what is happening in in german you know popular culture uh right now or at least i don't maybe maybe oh, yeah, yeah. Do. you know when we when we're talking about it i'm also suddenly it, it comes to mind that maybe this it is also part of the period that the 2000s was a was a uh i don't know it, it had a kind of unabashed and and glamorous kind of neo-colonialism to it um like i think in the in the in the decades since there also because of the media landscape has changed to, to the extent that it has but there was this sense that that or I feel like now maybe people are more interested in reviving uh, regional cultural fields in in all arts in all fields of culture, um, and and during that time it was really everything was about New York, you know, like and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, sort of shamelessly so, like we didn't want for anything else. Uh, the apartments in Copenhagen were decorated like a New York loft, you know, that's what it <laughs> in the, in the um, adverts from the real estate agent. Um, and, and I think that has changed also. And maybe that is, is part of, of why this essay is the way it is. Uh-huh. So you, one person you discuss a little bit is Diane Sawyer, uh, the TV journalist, you know, interviewer of celebrities and important newsmakers. And you quote from a couple of her interviews. And she had a famous, she had one that w like was brought back into the interview with Britney Spears was part of the documentary looking, you know, reassessing her case or whatever. And the way that, you know, I guess that that interview was like 12 years prior to when people started looking at it again. And it does seem like the, the way Sawyer acts and interacts with Brittany and sort of shaming her and stuff is, um, yes, does seem like a totally different era. What, but what, what about Diane Sawyer? Uh, what, what do you find interesting about her? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that that interview is really uh, an exercise in coldness and cruelty. To uh, phrase the the title of Deleuze's book that I also talk, talk about, that it's just so she's so incredibly sort of professional in that moment, and that fascinates me. I think that to be so to be serious and to be serious at your at the expense of how you come across. Um, is is something that 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 struck me now as as kind of exotic, um, that she's so married to um, her sort of, mm, I don't know her 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 idea of journalism as something that serves an audience. Like I think that this was kind of what I what I sort of hooked onto that she's after a story, and mm -hmm. um and 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 I think now I think also with social media and stuff, it's much more about the celebrity themselves as if we could all be them. That we always put ourselves in those sh in 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 their shoes or something, rather than 
like using the celebrity as a means of entertainment for for our sake. And and she was really thinking about her audience. She wanted to make Britney cry because that's what what uh, that's what the audience wants. It it also reminds me of this um, anecdote about Joan Didion, where 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 somebody asks her like, wasn't it terrible to see a little boy who was on drugs when she writes about Height and Ash Ashbury in the in the in in the late sixties and 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 she's like, oh, that was gold, you know, like right, right. what journalists are looking for, and this this kind of yeah, this seriousness. I think that fascinated me. Um, she's not sentimental. Thinking about some of the yeah, some of the things from fifteen twenty years ago. I mean, with Britney, it was sort of like the well-meaning. You know, I think there was a, like a Matt Lauer interview that was also shown and. It was, of course, revealed subsequently that Matt Lauer was a sexual harasser. But, um, you know, he was it was things like, don't you think you're too sexy and like giving a bad example for young girls like or I mean, and there was also a lot of stuff about the way Britney was acting with her small children. But sort of that like moral fake or real moral concern about like think of the children kind of thing. And then that sort of went away, and at least in America, a different moral like fervor arose, and some people call this wokeness or or whatever. But like, you can't imagine someone today interviewing a pop star and being like, "Do you worry you're too sexy?" Like that that sort of concern has totally evaporated. And maybe that was more of a late '90s thing than a than an aughts sort of thing. But just like think of the children, um, a lot of especially related to like sexuality like that is that's changed now and maybe it's turned into like these absurd right-wing concerns about like drag queens you know turning kids queer or something like that sort of that you know concern about the children but it's it seems laughable today whenever there's some like right-wing figure who moralizes about something um, being like too sexually provocative or whatever. It was like that, those concerns <laughs> have, have vanished from the public sphere. And now it's like, you know, they're teaching, at least in America, they're teaching your kids critical race theory. They're teaching them how to be woke. It's, it's very, it's very different. Yeah. In a, in a sense, because I think that this example that you give with the, um, with this drag queen story hour, which I also find completely absurd, but it is in in, in many ways the same as the Britney example, because um, the the drag queen is the kind of sexual ambiguous archetype, and 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 very much in the same way, this kind of um, this like young girl who could just as easily have been a young boy um, is very often in art history a a young boy. Um, who is too too sexy? Who is who is <laughs> captivating and who is destroying, in a sense, uh, the one who looks at her? It's it's a kind of well known trope, I think, in you know throughout art history, and and it catches the public's attention. And 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 then it was Britney, and now we have the drag queens. They these figures are always it, and and it often has to do with it with with sexual ambiguity that it it does something to people's desire. Uh, which they hadn't anticipated or something. Um, yeah, and even, I mean, thinking about this more, you know, like the fear, like, you know, Britney Spears, baby one more time, it was like, you know, taking the schoolgirl thing, make it too sexy, so the fear would be, you know, your 12-year-old daughter is going to wear a short skirt and, you know, get pregnant, <laughs> and that, that'll be that for her. And then now the fear 
is even more ridiculous of where it's like your kid will be tricked into like changing their gender expression or something through yes through, through a drag queen or or something but yeah i guess you're, you know maybe the the core fear is essentially is essentially the same one but it is yeah there's i mean trans people were barely part of the public conversation um 20 years ago so maybe it's just that that yeah, aspect I of think, it i think whenever something is absurd to that level um, it is because it triggers something unconscious or like it's because there is some kind of greater cultural force, you know, because it is like it just doesn't make any sense. You know, the reason why children like young kids get pregnant is because they don't teach like where I was in Idaho. Uh, all, like they were, I've never seen so many pregnant children and it's because they don't believe in abortion. You know, Like there are other reasons for this than than uh, whatever's on MTV. Um, but in a way, like I can't. I, I love Britney uh, for, for, in a way, for what happened to her image. Like, I think that she's a kind of fantastic icon um, and, and really an icon in, in the kind of religious sense that is, is often to do with, with kind of sacrifice or, or dis, you know, like, it, it, like destruction comes before it or something. And, 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 and how, like, the, I think the pop stars of today, I was like thinking about Beyonce or Taylor Swift. Beyonce, of course, has been with us for just as long, but they are, uh, they're not icons. They're not, they don't have this religious quality of sacrifice. They, they are powerful. They're a king, you know? Um, they're secular in a sense. And that was what, what was magical about Britney. You can't produce this type of thing. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, thinking about the, a figure like Britney, yeah, I mean, I guess Beyonce is probably about the same age, maybe just a couple years younger than than Britney, and came out came up just a couple years later. Um, yeah, I mean, Beyonce, her image has become well. You say secular, I, I think she's treated like a goddess or something. Like she is beyond human in her beauty, her dancing ability, her like performance, and you know, people treat yeah treat her like she's a different being. And then with with Britney, there was so much glee in her in her like downfall and the media obsession with her um, like mental illness or or whatever. And but there definitely was like a gleefulness in the like oh she's finally getting her comeuppance for all you know her bad behavior or her sluttiness you know quote unquote or whatever. Um, and then. Maybe it's just like image management has changed in some ways for these figures. And, you know, Beyonce probably has 100 people working behind the scenes, maintaining her her image as this like distant figure who comes down from the heavens to perform or, or drop a new album every couple of years. Uh, Swift is somewhere in the middle, I think. Um, she foregrounds her like humanness and her failings and romantic failings and stuff more. But yeah, but maybe it was like Britney and her era. There was no other way for her to communicate with her fans than through paparazzi interviews on the Today Show, stuff like that. Whereas now, the contemporary pop stars have a unmediated, sort of, I mean, technologically mediated connection with their fans. Does that does any of this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Make sense I mean, to you? I I'm thinking about it also as you speak, like I have this this metaphor in the in the piece about um, the, like a changing of the guards, that there's this kind of there's this 
feeling that like that say Brittany and, and Diane Sawyer met at the changing of the guards, that that part of what was able to produce this this kind of almost religious spectacle of iconicity, like Brittany's kind of public sacrifice, um, was that that the that the media landscape was out of control. Like there was a kind of mass image production, mass circulation, uh, mass consumption that like uh, almost on the same level that we know today, but like just before it was formalized. You know how like for a while, everybody thought that they would never again pay for music. And then like in the 2000s and then like Spotify came along and everything was structured and you know, like hmm. that there was this moment of kind of chaos or something, right? <laughs> we just realized what to, what to do with these new image technologies. And um, and maybe now that there's so much control around it, uh, like it maybe it takes a bit of chaos to produce a real icon in this kind of religious sense. And the, the people who are now, like I noticed this, you know, more than five years ago, but when <laughs> I go to the supermarket and look at the covers of, you know, gossip magazines, I don't know who any of the people are because I don't watch reality TV like that. The the people who are like the subjects of gossip and intrigue and stuff are much less actual celebrities and much more people who are on reality TV. And then they're there primarily to create drama. <laughs> and it's not like they have a side a side thing. You know, maybe they want to be a musician or an actress or something, but it's not like we're gossiping about who the great, you know, singer is hooking up with. It's like the real housewives of whoever, like the latest feud. So there's been some separation between like the people who have artistic talent and are obsession with their personal lives. And then this like relatively new class of people who just exist for, you know, gossip and uh, turmoil and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, something which I find really uh, annoying about uh, reality TV in in the last decade um, is is like the I think the difference is which is really well illustrated in the in the in the difference between top model and RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, which are be, it's basically <laughs> the same show, you know. But top model was about cruelty, um, and RuPaul's Drag Race is about emancipation or about affirmation, about finding yourself and giving a place to like difference and and then and then drag queens are supposed to be bitchy and stuff but like actually it's quite like sweet everything <laughs> um, that's and that's interesting and yet yeah there definitely was sort of a second or third generation of reality shows that were more focused on being nice <laughs> and stuff like queer the queer eye reboot and great british bake-off were more about <laughs> there's other sort of shows that are about like people with some sort of skill like glass blowing or flower arranging or something. And it's less of the like, I'm going to sabotage your souffle or something. So I win. And it's much more like these are friendly people like displaying their particular talents, that yeah, sort of yeah. thing. So that's somewhat, I guess that's some sort of dialectic, <laughs> the cruelty aspect of reality TV. Let's see. So one name that goes unmentioned for makes sense, but I want to ask you about it is, is Trump. And, you know, Trump is like a multi-decade phenomenon. Can you talk about why you, and of course, The, the Apprentice, um, I think started in 2003 or four. Um, why did you leave leave him out of this uh, this piece? 
I guess like I hadn't actually thought about it, to be honest. It was not like a, a very conscious decision. I think I'm not a person who's very uh, interested in him. I'm not like sort of fascinated by by uh, his image. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in a way, it's also like part of what it it's it says in the very end of the piece that like that where I speculate that maybe one of the reasons why, um, why all the same stories are being restaged, like these reboots of like Gossip Girl or whatever, um, is because no story we've come up with since has actually been better than those that 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 kind of were, where the blueprint kind of came from from the two thousands. And in in a sense, I think that Trump is not a good story. Um, he's <laughs> a, he's like a tragic story, a, a, like a kind of like a like there's something so base about him. Like in the, in the sense that Britney has this kind of archetypical grandeur, e- even in her even in her tragedy, she kind of really shines. And and Trump is like a fool menace, or like it's just, it's not like somehow his image is not sophisticated enough for me to really kind of have have, been, have ever been interested in. Huh. Okay, that's that's interesting. And of course, if you lived in America during the Trump years, his image was inescapable because he projected his image and voice nonstop to the citizenry. And so that was bad, but it's, you know, he's, if we associate him primarily with one decade culturally, it would be the eighties. Like he's an eighties guy. That's when he came up and that's when he was like dominating New York tabloids and stuff and built this, his company became big. He built the legend of himself. And then in the nineties, he became, he actually, you know, declared bankruptcy and then became the sort of postmodern version of himself where he would appear on TV representing a rich guy, but he actually, wasn't rich anymore. He was just like a pure symbol. And then he reinvented himself again in the, the 2000s with Apprentice. And that was a show a lot about cruelty because the I watched this. This is like one of the features I watched when I was in college and it was extremely entertaining. Um, so I remember the first two seasons pretty well. And it was like, you know, the final part of each episode, would be like the boardroom and these contestants would come in and Trump would like grill them and yell at them. And it was really like, he, you know, he was like the the stern guy in charge who was like, you screwed up, you're out of here, you're fired. And so that was like another addition to the Trump image or mythology was that, you know, he was the one who could make the tough calls. And yeah, yeah he was an asshole, but like, you know, he could sort things out. And I mean, then he like rode that <laughs> into the presidency, uh, you know, bizarrely. So yeah. I think he... I think if it wasn't for The Apprentice, he would never have um, been able to run for president because it brought him. He was he was a joke in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Like he would be on Fresh Prince of Bel Air or something. Uh, but right, right. and another really interesting way that this because you were asking in the beginning like how these these seemingly banal things connect to the big ones, you know, in sometimes really straightforward ways they do. Yes. Yeah. I mean that he was a reality TV star. And that sort of <laughs> was a way of recasting his image as the businessman who knew everything. And of course, mm-hmm. everyone, you know, even by 2016, everyone knew reality TV was fake. And um, <laughs> and, and yet somehow uh, he was able to pull this off. So that's kind of yeah, crazy. Yeah. But it does make sense that you would not want to bring think, him into this. Also just a, like, because um, when you put it like that, like, it does sound very interesting, you know? And The Apprentice, in a sense, is the male version. There are probably women on it too, but it's the essentially male version of Top Model. Um, yes, that's a good point. 
It's the same. It's the same. I don't know which one was first, actually, but it's the same essential thing. There's competitions and then a final thing. And it's not Tyra Banks. It's Donald yeah. Trump sending you um, packing home. But And maybe she's a bit better. Maybe she's not exactly cruel, but she's a bit better at being mean. I think that Donald Trump like doesn't have the sophistication for cruelty. Like he's more just violent or something. <laughs> um, Interesting. Which I think also, if you start to talk about sadism, it's like a, it's a different thing. You know, there are very fine lines to be drawn there. Um, but maybe Trump and The Apprentice is also the beginning in the sense of this kind of entrepreneurial DIY culture, which dominates social media now, and which is in a way the the end of like the Diane Diane Sawyer reign of like professionalism. You know that everyone is a happy amateur, like any but like. So some dude with a TV show can become president, you know, <laughs> if, if he could do it, anyone can kind of thing. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, his Trump's, you know, definitely delights in the suffering of others. And so I think that's sadistic. Well, can you talk about, I mean, you, you mentioned like theories of sadism and masochism uh, throughout and the, um, yeah, this book um, by, is it Deleuze? I don't know any uh, European theory, so I can't even pronounce their names, but you, can you talk a little bit about, the concepts of sadism and how how you applied those to uh, to this? Yeah, so um, it's it's all a kind of murky territory, and there are many different ways to talk about it. But the way that that uh, Gilles Deleuze talks about it in this book called Coolness and Cruelty um, is that he really makes a totally sharp distinction between sadism and masochism, where like a lot of people will will almost will will assume that like oh the person doing the beating is the sadist and the one receiving the beating is the masochist. Deleuze says no, you know that it's not about who does what; it's about the uh, the nature of the of the pain that is inflicted. Um, and there he characterizes sadism as as this kind of more cold, impersonal, um, almost mechanical um, type of action, which is to do with repetition and hollowness in a sense, where masochism is about rules and morality and um, basically chains rather than whips, as the title says. And, and that's also why I'm kind of able to project, to project one onto the 2000s and one onto the 2010s um, and in a sense separate them. Mm -hmm. um, oh, can you talk a little bit about, you, you write the V, um, you know, the like malady of the 2010s was anxiety and, and the malady of the 2000s was like an eating disorder or uh, bulimia or something like that. Can you talk about, about that idea? So obviously it's kind of a, a, a controversial thing to use uh, disorders as, as in a sense, metaphors or, or emblems. Um, but um, I, I think I don't do it in a way to diminish their impact on, on the lives of individuals, but more actually to kind of elevate them. Like I do think that when people have the like have these feelings, it it uh, it belongs to a collective culture and to to mm -hmm. wider trends, right? And 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 I think in terms of the two thousands and anorexia, I it's both literal in the sense of I like I recall the 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 girls in school like um pulling at their sleeves because it like it looks very chic to be cold because mm -hmm. you're just eating and like that there are certain um aesthetic trends like having nothing in your kitchen except for one red thing from cartel or like that there were certain this kind of idea of the minimal 
the minimalist home, uh, which at least in Europe was like very prevalent, everything being white, that there was something anorexic, like a, a sense of purging, all these uh, home makeover shows that were about throwing things out, getting rid of your past. It was about being as small as possible, but but in a way, in, in the grandest way possible, where where like, in in the sense in a sense identity politics in the 2010s is much more accumulative you know you add uh things to yourself pronouns <laughs> and blue hair and weak piercings and like it's really more it's 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 the opposite kind of just in in like structurally in terms in terms of how we how it figures subjectivity um yeah okay that's interesting and in, in in sort of the idea of once you, you know, if you want to become like famous online or something, you have to like differentiate yourself in some way. And, and yeah, listing all of your, um, like, the, yeah, there's, there's like these competing, te like urges to both be like the an individual person and then to like categorize yourself in these certain ways that reveal who you are. Like, you know, you're a Libra and you're INTJ and you're <laughs> a Hufflepuff and your Enneagram seven, I'm, you know, I don't know what any of these things actually mean, but, um, but like listing all those things and then like, you're the only one who has all, all seven of them is yeah. Like a very modern thing of where everyone is like constructing, like very obviously constructing this persona for online interactions that was let was more like something you just do in, uh, like a, the, a construction of the cell was more, a more individual project or at least a less like publicly obvious one. Um, yeah. Before, before all that. Yeah, and which I think relates to the uh, to the image production as well. The kind of difficulty of of even taking a single picture of yourself in the two thousands, and then this kind of proliferation of endless selfies. Um, the self becomes huge, I think, also because it is externalized. Um, there's not a lot inside anymore. Um, and and maybe also as Deleuze says about sadism, it is about condensation. Like that the the this like the self in the two thousands was in in a weird way condensed because the public culture was so brutal that you had to really keep everything very close and um, I don't know protect yourself. Is there anything else? I think we're about towards the end of our time. Is there anything else you want to add or mention uh, before we wrap things up? Um. <laughs> I, no, I don't know. I'm, I'm just really, um, I'm happy that you found this piece and that it, it somehow, uh, and that it spoke to you. I like what part of what, what part of it was it that you that interested you? Do you think that it's that we are kind of ready to talk about the 2000s again, and everybody starts dressing like that again, and that it's in that sense, it's like zeitgeisty? Uh, or or I, is it, I'm you know? all, all, I'm in general interested in, in like just the idea that there's a, a link between you know, the low rise jeans and Abu Ghraib, like that sort of thing always appeals to me of thinking about, you know, the, the, the big thing and the sort of like more quote unquote silly thing, um, as having some link. I think it's interesting. Yeah. There's definitely like the fashions are coming back and it has been 20 years <laughs> since the Iraq invasion. And there's young people who have no memory of this era who are sort of like discovering it through old, you know, like YouTube clips or something. I don't know if you if you saw this one, this thing going around Twitter a couple months ago. There was this video that someone posted. It must have been from like the yearbook club or something at an American high school, or maybe someone just brought in 
a camcorder and it was like 2002 and they're walking through the hallways and everyone is sort of like smiling and waving at the person um at the camera and the comment was i think seemingly from a young person and it was something like wow it must have been so amazing to be like look how like happy everyone seems and like yeah it's like so simple back then it was like 2002 so it's like you know you're after 9-11 but you know obviously like back then it was novel if, if a kid is walking through the hallways with a camcorder and so people are like oh hi you know and waving at the camera and it's just yes yeah, so i don't know there's there's people who have no limit no matter of that and don't even under, understand it that it would have once been unusual for another high school student to be filming in the hallway and now mm-hmm. it's like i guess all these kids are making TikTok videos, um, dur- you know, during <laughs> passing time between classes or something. So I don't know. There's a recontextualization of that period, and younger pe- younger people looking back at it. There's nostalgia. The yeah, flashes are back. There's, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff um, that I found interesting about the piece. I mean, something that I'm also thinking about uh, since since writing it is is like that what you're describing there. Because of course, there's everything has always come in cycles, and ev- everything is always the same in in a way, you know. Um, but there is this this mounting sense that newness is not quite possible anymore, and that things repeat themselves uh, at such a rate um, that things are re- like that. There's no memory almost, and I don't know that that seems to me maybe that's the 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 site of like newness or something, but. Um, somehow I wonder if the 2000s was the last time something felt new. Um, That's interesting. I mean, of course, yeah, you know, 9-11, that was very new. Uh, <laughs> airplanes crashing into skyscrapers. Um, but also just there's like a, at least in American popular culture, there's a sort of stagnancy over the past five to 10 years of every movie is a sequel or a reboot or some pre-existing intellectual property and all these TV shows are having reunions or coming back or something. So yeah, it's like there hasn't been something totally new in that sort of level of popular culture in a while. And it seems like they're going to run out of, you know, they're, they're like already rebooting things that were just like finished, you know, like 10 years ago, <laughs> they're doing a new version of them. So that seems there's some sort of stagnant aspect of like mass popular culture there at least. And, and maybe yeah. people are waiting for, waiting for a change or yeah eager for a time when there could be like you know the matrix came out it seemed entirely new and now we have like the fourth matrix movie that came out and it's sort of like rehashing these same i think these same things again Mm -hmm. yeah um cool no i i think i i've i've said a lot of things i hope that they that they kind of made sense Okay, I think they did. Well, okay, if you... Uh, so why don't we wrap things up there? Um, <laughs> we both think... Yeah, you hope they made sense. I think they did make sense. We'll let the viewers... Or not the viewers. We'll let the listeners decide. But if, if people want to follow your work, uh, where would you direct them to go? Um, I guess Google my name and look at my website. I'm actually not on um, social media. Um, but all of my work, more or less, is online. Okay, and a, a link... I'll put a link to your personal website in the show notes. And there'll also be a link to the essay itself, um, which we've been discussing, which the title once again is chains or whips, the cruel decade and its aftermath in the white review. And, you know, people can, I still am on social media, or at least Twitter. People can follow me there at RACW. Um, okay. Well, thank you, Christian, for taking the time and uh, 
uh, having a transatlantic conversation. And uh, thanks to everyone who listened to this and, you know, they can rate and review and do those sorts of things that help the show. And uh, yeah, well, thanks again. Cool. Thank you so much for having me.